We are in Luke 9 today for the reading of the word. Verse 57, as they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. He said to another man, follow me. But he replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. The word of the Lord. Morning, everybody. So I want to invite you to close your eyes. And I know that's a risk on a weekend when we've lost an hour of sleep, but we're going to do it (laughs) together. Close your eyes. This is what I want you to picture. When everybody plays, here we go. Close your eyes, I want you to picture an army. What do you picture? What do you expect of their conduct, both individually and as a team? And what do you understand to be their mission? And how would you think that they celebrate a job well done? Okay, now you can open your eyes. And we're going to put a picture up on screen of my family's favorite board game when I was growing up, the game Risk. Any other Risk players here? All right. We'll start a ministry. So in Risk, everybody's a different color, and your goal is to conquer the entire world. And there's often a point in a Risk game about midway through where you survey the board, and you can see who's clearly got more armies than someone else, and you think, oh, they're going to win. But often, you're wrong because it ends up not being who has the most numbers, but position on the board, some luck, the way you roll the dice. Yeah, you're nodding your head, you've played, yeah. And strategy, and sometimes you're very, very surprised as to who wins the game in the end. Now, about 500 years before Christ, 490 BC, there was a great battle called the Battle of Marathon, fought in ancient Greece. And the Persians came across the channel, and the The Greeks were not expecting them, and the Persians landed on 600 ships with 20,000 men. Here's an invading force. And the Athenians down south freaked out, oh my goodness, we're getting invaded, we weren't expecting this. And somehow they were able to pull together 10,000 hoplite soldiers, which are foot soldiers. So 20,000 invaders versus 10,000 defenders. The Greeks didn't have the numbers, but they had a strategy. And so they lined all these guys up, arm in arm, as wide as the Persian army was, and they ran at them, full speed, full force. And the line broke in the middle, but they were able to surround them. And that day, the Persians, starting with 20,000 troops, lost 6,400 men. And the Greeks, starting with 10,000 troops, lost 192. So the point is, without strategy and mission, Numbers don't mean much. And I begin with that this morning because we're coming to a time in our culture, in our country, where the number of non-Christians and non-religious people is going to become more numerous than Christians. It's coming. And my question for you is, can you still have hope? Because Jesus started with only 12 we'll come back to that in a second. 
Since the beginning of the year in our church, we've been revisiting our purpose as a church. Why do we exist? What are we trying to accomplish? And we've been walking through the values of our church, the, the lines, the boundary lines that we want to play within and not get outside those things. And then we moved into the practices. And last weekend, Willie spoke and had you actually do uh, some practices related to wor- uh, worship and prayer. And this morning, we're on word and discipleship. Word being the word of God, the Bible, and discipleship. And we're going to talk about both of those things. Now, you might ask, why would we spend time in a Sunday morning service talking about the practice of the word? Isn't it obvious that we're a church, we're a Bible-believing church, we're, we're an evangelical church, we're conservative in theology, so, so duh, clearly, uh, we treasure and we practice the word. Move on, go on from there. But I want you to answer this question in your mind. How would you answer this? What is the Bible? And what is the Bible for? What is the Bible? And what is the Bible for? There's a lot of cliched answers out there, bumper sticker answers that have been developed, but, but I find that that answer varies widely among people. What is the Bible? And what is the Bible for? And you see, without a solid sense of understanding of that in our own lives and collectively as a group, then we can have numbers and we can have numbers of people reading large numbers of books in the Bible, but, but we're not on mission together because we're not understanding what the Bible is for. I'm going to give you my own understanding of the answer to that question. It's not right or wrong. It's, it's, it's just the understanding that I've come to of what the Bible is and what it's for later in this message. But first, let's start with this. Uh, obviously, we believe in the Bible. We preach the Bible on Sunday mornings. It takes up a large chunk of the worship service time. But I want to say this. Whether you're visiting from another church this morning or you were watching us online or, or you've been part of this church for a long time, if your pastor or the paid staff at your church are the only ones studying the Bible, your church is in trouble. The Bible is for everyone. The Bible is for you. I want you to say that. The Bible is for me. Say that. And you can learn it, and you can absolutely understand it. And here's something that bugs me deeply. When people say to me of their pastor, can be from this church, another church, or someone they watch online, they say, that guy reads the Bible and picks up things I could never see. I need that person to teach me because they just see things that when I read the Bible, I don't see that. And you know, that drives me crazy. And I want to say, no, 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 no. The Bible is not some secret hidden code. Now, look, there's a place for scholarship. It's important. There's a time to get back into the original languages and really parse apart what it is saying and, and study church tradition and read commentaries. That all is important. And, and, and the fact that we have guys who study the Word during the week and then teach on weekends, that's important. But the Bible's meaning is not secret. It's not. We believe in a, the doctrine called the perspicuity of Scripture. And don't let that word scare you. All it means is that Scripture is perspicacious. <laughs> I'm messing with you. All it means is that Scripture is clear in the things that it teaches. And so you don't need to rely on some soothsayer or some mystic to read between the lines and give you the secret meaning that's there. No, the things that the Bible teaches is clear. 
And when you come across a teacher who's got some hidden meaning that they're giving you, they're probably not teaching you the Bible. They're probably trying to sell you books. I'm just being honest, okay? The Bible is for you, and you can learn it. And you should learn it. Because otherwise, what we're saying is God revealed himself through the Holy Spirit and the pages of Scripture, and, and only like nine people in all of history have had the skill and understanding to tell us what it really means. I'm like, come on. No, no, no. No, no, no. The Bible is for you, and you can learn it, and you were meant to learn it. It is God's gift to you. So certainly there are things in the Bible that if you just open randomly to a page, and I don't recommend this, and you start reading, and there's a historical context and a setting and there's, there's cultural traditions that it will reference. And if you have no idea where that's coming from, you're just, oh, I read the Bible, but I didn't get anything out of it. As you learn the Bible and the Bible storyline and how the story is told, you're going to gain skill in that. Let me give you an example from everyday life. I'm going to read a sentence, and you're going to raise your hand if you understand what I'm talking about. Okay, here it is. The chord begins on the tonic, then moves to the fourth, then the fifth, then the relative minor, and resolves on the one. Now raise your hand if you understood what I was talking about. We've got a smattering of musicians in the crowd, and the rest of you are not. But you could learn it. If you took some music theory, if you played an instrument, you would know what I was talking about, and the Bible's the same way. The Bible has a story that it tells. It's got a historical setting. It's got, again, cultural things that it references. And once you've got those down... You're going to read anything in the Bible and go, oh, I I get it. I understand it. Back in 1991, they surveyed American adults, and 45% of American adults said that they read the Bible at least weekly. By 2009, that number had gone actually up. 46% of adult Americans said they read the Bible at least weekly. By 2020, that number had gone down to 33% of adult Americans reading the Bible at least weekly, despite the fact that most Americans, including a majority of young adults, believe the Bible is the most influential book ever written. And two-thirds of all Americans do believe the Bible is the Word of God. So how does the Bible not become the book that we all own but nobody ever reads? That's what we want to help you with this morning so that you can get the most out of what God intends for you in the Bible. Let me give you some suggestions on how to to do the practice of the Word, other than coming and hearing preaching, which is good, but how does it come alive in your life? Let me give you some suggestions. Number one, it's very profound, read it. (laughs) Simply read your Bible. You say, I don't know where to begin. I don't know either, but you can begin anywhere. The story is told of St. Augustine. He writes this in his autobiography that he was a young man and he was very troubled by his sin and very crushed by guilt. And he was in a garden area somewhere and he heard a child's voice, even though there were no children anywhere near, saying, take up and read. Take up and read. And so he grabbed his Bible and for whatever reason, he opened to Romans chapter 13 and it spoke to exactly what he was going through that day. So I would say, you just start with where you are. Maybe you pray and say, God, I, I, I don't really understand the Bible. Never really cracked the Bible other than a couple times. But where should I start? For me, it was in college, uh, though I was raised uh, in a church-going family and, and, and no stranger to the Bible, but I didn't really get how it worked. And for some reason, uh, I went and visited a friend 
um, I had some time off of school, and he was still in class. This was in the Twin Cities, and so I stayed behind in the dorm, and I had packed my Bible. I don't know why. And I opened the book of Acts, which I'd never read before. Didn't know Acts, didn't know that it was the Gospel of Luke part two, didn't know that it told the story of what happened after Jesus was taken into heaven. I didn't know, but I started reading it, and I was hooked. And then I put my Bible away for about four or five years, and it took that long for me to get rehooked again. But you just kind of start with wherever you're at. There are reading plans that you can follow. They're all over the internet. If you want a one-year reading plan or a two-year reading plan, or our church does a three-year reading plan, you can do a 90-day reading plan if you're really uh, uh, committed to it. But whatever, it'll take you through. Uh, this is what I do, um, try to do. I'm the dad of young kids, so some mornings I just want to stay in bed. But when I can get up, before they get up, I go to the psalm that matches the date for today. So today is March 13th, so you read Psalm 13. And then, this is the ideal, time permitting, I'm going to do five psalms. So I'm going to do 13 plus 30 is 43, plus 30 is 73, 103, 133. And then tomorrow, 14, 44, 74, 104, 134. And in that way, in the entire month, you do five psalms a day, you'll read the entire book of psalms. You can add on top of that Proverbs. There's 31 chapters in the book of Proverbs, so one chapter of Proverbs per day, and you just repeat that every single month. It's good for us as Christians to be really familiar with the New Testament, so reading a, a, a chapter or a section from the Gospels. But you know what else is really good? Is to take an entire one of Paul's letters or the letter from James or from Peter and just read it in one setting. Because if you think about it, that's how it was received. It wasn't one chapter at a time. It was sent to them and somebody read it out from beginning to end and you'll get a sense of how it all goes through. The point is, there's no secret to it. You just start with where you're at, and you begin reading it. Now, in addition to that, you want to get a sense of where the whole story is going, because the Bible does tell one story, but it uses 66 books and about 39 different authors to do that. And to get a sense of where it's all going, I highly recommend this resource called The Story. It's published by Zondervan, which if you own an NIV Bible, they're the publisher of your NIV Bible. And what the story is, is it is the words of the Bible, but it's laid out in chapters and it's laid out chronologically. So you know if you read the Bible and start in Genesis and read from beginning to end, you're not necessarily going chronologically. You're going forward, but then you get to a section that jumps back, forward and back, and it can be easy to get confused. But what this does is it takes long sections of Scripture and it will condense it for you put that in italics, just to move you forward. And it's okay. That's not, that's okay. That's not cheating. Okay. Because in 31 chapters, think of it. If you read one chapter a day, that's, that's one month of your life invested. And you walk away, you're like, whoa, the Bible makes sense in a way that it never has before, because I know how to connect things from the beginning to the end. A lot of us learn instances in the Bible, David and Goliath. Daniel in the lion's den. But which one came first? And see, when you have a sense of how the whole Bible fits together, you'll know the answer to that question, and you'll also know why it has to be that David and Goliath came before Daniel in the lion's den. So I've got three copies of this that I'll give away at the end of the message. 
if you commit to and promise that you will read it cover to cover. I don't care how long it takes you. You've just got to promise me you'll get through it. I'll give you a copy. Just come talk to me. That's the story. And that's also mentioned in your sermon outline. So the title of that, as, as is the title of this book, this would be the next one I would read. It's called How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. This is a standard textbook that's assigned in seminaries, but you don't have to sign up for seminary. You can buy this book for about 15 bucks online by Gordon Fee and Douglas Stewart. And it, it, it's going to tell you how the Bible tells this story, how different books work. What's the difference in a prophetic book versus a, a historical book? And where do the poetry books fit in? It's sort of like when I'm reading a particular book, what should I be looking for? This is gold. Okay, everybody should read this, How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. Again, that title is in your notes there. And then, memorize. Memorize things in the Bible. You say, oh, I was with you up till that point. I I do not like to memorize things. I was bad at memorizing things in school. Look, you memorize lots of things. You memorize things that are important to you. So I say when it comes to memorizing Scripture, there's a lot of plans out there you can follow, you can do that, but I say you just start with what's important to you. You start with something in the Bible that matters. For me, when I started memorizing Scripture, it was I knew Jesus said somewhere uh, something about salt, your salt, your light, but I didn't know where. I didn't know exactly what he said. So I made it a point. All right, I'm going to find this, and I'm going to commit it to memory. And I found it right there in Matthew chapter 5. I knew that Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. I had no idea where that was or where he was, what came before, what came after. So I found it, and I committed it to memory, John 14, 6. I was home from college uh, one summer, and I met up with a friend from high school, and she said to me, uh, you know, there's nowhere in the Bible that Jesus actually said he was God. And I knew she was wrong, but I couldn't point her to where. And so that became the challenge for me to overcome. Oh, my goodness. The next time somebody says it to me, I got to know where in Scripture to take them. See, and bit by bit by bit, you just use the things in your life or you use something you're going through or a close friend is going to, and, and you study the Scriptures and, and you go, yeah, yeah, where is that? And you will build up this memory store of, of verses in your life and you'll have no trouble memorizing because it means something to you. Thursday, Friday, I was in a, a training with some other folks here on staff on discipleship and sitting at a table, and Nick Gilmore used the phrase, uh, as we go from glory to glory. And I'm like, oh, it's in the Bible, and I should know where, but I can't recall it. And so I made it a point. There, and there it was, 2 Corinthians 3.18. Okay, with Google, this gets really, really easy. It's not that challenging. So... <laughs> So, so you want to be like a Berean. In the book of Acts, Paul tells about as he travels around, he goes to Berea, and he meets the Bereans, and the Bereans were of noble character, more noble than the Thessalonians who ran him out of town, and they received the message with great eagerness, the Bible says, and they examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. So we all become students of scripture. Where What's going on in my life, and how does the Bible speak into it? Because at its bedrock, we believe 2 Timothy 3.16, which says all Scripture is God-breathed, 
inspired by God and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. And one of the great contributions of the movement that this church was birthed out of, Calvary Chapel, was a commitment to take the Bible seriously, to look at a, a piece of a passage of Scripture and say, what is God speaking through His Word? It's a great legacy of Calvary Chapel. And with all that said, now there's a but. And here's the but. You ready for it? As important as the Bible is, knowing the Bible is not enough. You say, how can you say that? Don't you believe the Bible is the Word of God? I do. I do. I believe reading my Bible is important. And I, I know a lot about the Bible. And I also know how I struggle. And I also know that the fact that I know a lot about the Bible doesn't make me necessarily a better Christian than you. Bible knowledge is not enough. There are pastors who have known the Bible inside and out, who have nonetheless cheated on their wives. There are pastors who have pledged fidelity to the Bible, who nonetheless go home and they're addicted to alcohol. There are pastors who can tell you the original languages and are committed to the truth of Scripture, who have alienated their adult children. There are whole denominations who have pledged fidelity to the Word of God, who have nonetheless sponsored white supremacy and Jim Crow. And the whole world notices, and they laugh at us. Because in 1928, some scientists decided to study what's the difference in kids who go to Sunday school and receive religious instruction from the Bible and those who don't. And they published their findings in a book called Studies in Deceit. And they found that children who regularly attended Sunday school were no less likely to lie than those who didn't attend Sunday school. And ever since then, the world has been trying to poke holes in why, why would I turn out on a Sunday morning to listen to the Bible when I could be sleeping in? It doesn't make any difference. Why would I read the Bible on my own and make a daily habit of it? It doesn't make any difference, you see. And so I said earlier, if, if, if your, your paid staff at your church are the only ones who study the Bible, your church is in trouble. But now I'm going to add on top of that, if the end product of studying the Bible is only Bible knowledge in your head, but it doesn't lead to personal and character transformation, your church is also in trouble. The Bible is for something. It is meant to produce something. James 1.22 says, don't merely listen to the word and so deceive yourself. Oh, I got it. I got all the answers right here. Do what it says. And I added that exclamation point up there. I think James meant an exclamation point, so I had an exclamation point up there. We got to do what it says. It's not enough for a pastor of any church to stand up here and be the answer guy. What are you doing with that knowledge? You, you want to impress somebody? Come up with a demonic device so that you can rattle off all the kings of Israel in order and then pull that out as a party trick and just see people, whoa, amazed. No. You want to impress somebody? Become a different person. Become a better boss. Become a better parent. 
become a better husband or wife. Because I can tell you, my wife doesn't care how much time I spend reading the Bible. If I'm yelling at her and the kids the rest of the morning, rest of the day, it has to connect together because nobody can argue with a changed life, you see. And so this is the sense when we get to 1 Timothy chapter 1, Paul doesn't spend a lot of time, uh, hey, Timothy, how are you? He jumps right in because there was a problem in the church where Timothy was, and that is that they were studying and arguing over the minutia of Scripture and genealogies. And Paul says, no, 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 no. The goal of our instruction is love. You've got to get to love because without love, you're just a clanging gong and a clanging cymbal, and, and, and you've got to get to love. So the question for you is, regardless of your Bible study level, you may have studied little or a lot, but has it made you a more loving person? And if not... You need to not read your Bible. You need to start eating your Bible. <laughs> this is what I mean by that. I sometimes tell kids, we're going to learn to eat the Bible. Like when you eat a nutritious piece of food and it goes down into your belly and then breaks down the nutrients and it sends nutrients into every part of your body to do its work. That's what the Bible is meant for. That you and I would eat our Bibles and live by the Word of God. See, in first century Judaism, there was no shortage of answers. When Jesus came, there was no shortage of answers. They had the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, and then on top of that, they had all sorts of oral interpretation and commentary and sayings of the rabbis. And, and after Jesus, those began to be collected in written form, and it's, it's the Mishnah, which then gets included by 500 AD into the Talmud. Lots and lots and lots of answers. And the point of the new Christian movement was not to come along and produce a Judaism 2.0. No, but, but that when Jesus came, something in our positional standing before him changed so that the Word of God is still important, but it is meant to impart not answers, but life. Answers stop here. I know everything about the Bible. Okay. But life flows through me and out to an outward direction. So do we still read the Bible? Yeah, we read the Bible. But New Testament legalism is still legalism. We read the Bible as the path to life. So the point isn't to be a Bible knower, it's to be a Bible doer and a Bible liver. And so how do we round the corner from that or to that? A couple suggestions. One, we want to study and read and memorize, but then we want to take it a step further and we want to meditate on the Word of God. Meditation is not a dirty word, but let me draw a distinction. There's meditation in an Eastern religious sense, which is, I'm going to empty my mind, get rid of everything that's in there, and create an empty space. That is not what we're talking about when we're talking about meditating in a Christian sense. Yes, I want to calm my heart and my mind, and I want to not think about the shopping list for Costco that day, but once the day-to-day -day stuff is out of there, I want to replace it with truth from the Word of God. 
and I want to meditate on it, which means I want to focus on it. I want to read it slowly. I want to turn it around in my mind again and again and again. And I want to look at it with my spiritual eyes, and I want to think about what is here for me that I really need. And that's meditation. Like in Psalm 1, where it talks about blessed is the one who uh, you know, does not sit in the seat of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord, verse 2, who meditates on his law day and night. And Psalm 10 is describing the wicked man or the wicked woman and says, in all of his thoughts, there is no room for God. In all of her thoughts, there's no room for God. Just full, cluttered up. And there's no... So when we meditate on God's word, we're making room, we're carving out space for God thoughts. And see, this is how we are going to stand firm and, and not lose our edge in a world full of sinners. If you're listening to the audio podcast, I'm doing this with my fingers, the air quotes. Sinners. And this is what Mark Foreman preached on a couple weekends ago, right? How, how do we be out in the world but not lose our witness and our edge as Christians? How do we hang out with sinners as Jesus did and not just, just give in, become just like them? And this is the answer, that we meditate on God's word and we make space in our minds and our lives that it can do his work. And my wish for you, and if you've got kids in our kids program, where I normally am, my wish is that you and they would develop what I call a God-soaked imagination. A God-soaked imagination. So that to survive as Christians, we don't just have to bury our, our nose in the Bible uh, 16 hours a day and nothing else but that we would spend time in God's Word, we would take it in, and it would filter into our consciousness such that any other interaction in that day, God is there. And our consciousness of God is there. Any other conversation, God is there. Any other temptation to sin, God is right there with us. A God-soaked imagination is, is like when my wife and I are watching Yellowstone now, and binging it so that we can cut off the subscription when we're done and not pay for it. <laughs> it's why we watch that at night, and then in the daytime, I find myself thinking, should we buy a horse? <laughs> because those ideas and those scenes have seeped into my mind, and it is affecting my behavior. Now, a great thing happened. I'm, I'm teaching this class based on the story. I do this... Uh, often to fourth, fifth, and sixth graders, parents and kids together. And we were through week one, which takes them through basically Genesis and then the whole story of the Exodus, and then they're right on the edge of the promised land about to go in. And so week two of the class was last Monday night, and I'm talking to a mom as she comes in. She goes, you know, we were reading those first six chapters. She said, and then my son and I, we decided to watch the Ten Commandments. That movie is four hours long. <laughs> You remember when they used to show that on Easter Sunday night on ABC? Yeah, and they'd have to cut a bunch of it because it's just so long. But I thought, Mom, good for you. Because you're developing a God consciousness and a God-soaked imagination in your son such that now every other time he goes back and reads the story of Exodus, he's going to have pictures in his mind. Yeah. God-soaked imagination is like a couple weeks ago, when I was driving my kids here, 
And they've certainly seen crosses before in books we have at home and, and in our home. But we, we roll up, I'm going to drop off at preschool, we roll into the parking lot coming this way, and they see the cross on top of this building and on top of the chapel. And my daughter says, how come there's a cross on top of the church? And there's another cross on top of the church. And I, and then I restrain myself from turning around and giving them the answer because I know that in four weeks, our church is going to sponsor something called the Good Friday Experience, where late in the afternoon, anybody of any age can come and walk through different rooms in our church, and we're going to depict and reflect on the meaning of the last events of the last week of Jesus' life on earth, and it's going to end at the cross. And see, my hope is they'll be thinking and processing, and when they see that cross and they've heard the Jesus story, it connects and comes together. And it, and it might not this time. They're not even four years old. They're going to get it. But rather than me just, here, that's what it is. I'm going to let that fester in their minds, you see. And God wants his word to fester in our minds. Not that we read it and go, oh, cool, business meeting that it festers in our minds. This is, this is Colossians 3.16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly to come alive. It's significant that Jesus called his followers as disciples. He didn't call them as soldiers. That metaphor would have made sense to them. There were armies back then. He could have said, I'm the commander, you're my soldier. He didn't do that. But he called them as disciples. A disciple was someone who left their life behind to follow a rabbi. And Jesus wasn't the only rabbi, and his disciples weren't the only disciples. And they would follow the rabbi around wherever he went, and their goal was to observe him, spend time with him, mimic him and ultimately to go out and do what he did. But in the process of all that time with him, the disciples themselves were changed. That was the secret sauce of Jesus' discipleship. Not that he just gathered these guys and said, okay, here's the game plan, now go. But that he would gather them to be with him, and they were going to go, and they were going to change the world, and they did it. But the intermediate step is that they were changed. See, sometimes you and I as Christians get impatient because we look at the world and all the problems and we just go, I want to go fix it. And, and we should go fix it. We should be passionate enough to change the things in the world that should be changed. But Jesus' intermediate step is, you come be with me and follow me as a disciple. And before you change all that wrong stuff out there, I'm going to change the wrong stuff in you and you're going to be changed. And so to come back to the Bible then, here's how I would answer the question, what is the Bible and what is the Bible for? I would say that the Bible is a light and a lens through which we can see God so that we can imitate, appreciate, and serve Him better. And by imitating Him, we are loving we're loving the whole world. We're loving God, loving our neighbor as ourselves, and we're loving the whole world. And the Bible should get us there. 
And if all the Bible reading and the Bible story is not getting us there, then we're doing it wrong. Why don't we lean into love of other people? When, when we're frustrated, when we're um, uh, banging our heads against things that can't change, why don't we lean into love? Have you ever thought of that? Why is my nature to turn into myself and just become bitter and complain and, and try to use revenge? Why don't we lean into love? I think the answer has something to do with the way that we see. I think Jesus saw humanity in a way that we don't naturally see humanity, but we are challenged to grow to that. It's the way that we see. So I recently got these glasses about a month ago. I'd had glasses before, but I never wore them until it really, really needed it. Long day of staring at the computer screen, and I was getting headaches and eye strain. And so then I'd, okay, all right, I'll, I'll, I'll wear my glasses. But I didn't like wearing my glasses, so I didn't wear them enough. So around the turn of the year, I was really struggling to see things. And, you know, what is that? And so I went to the eye doctor, and, of course, my eyes had gotten worse because I hadn't been wearing the glasses that I had. So they wrote me a new prescription, and I put in the order for the glasses, and they call me 10 days later, your glasses are in. And I, I come in, he goes, okay, here's your glasses. And I put them on for the first time, and I said to myself, I can't see with these things. I said to the guy behind the counter, I said, I, I think you got the prescription wrong or these are someone else's glasses. He goes, no, no, just give it a couple days. He goes, your eyes will adjust. Maybe don't drive with them for a couple days, but your eyes will adjust. And sure enough, within a couple days, words that I used to strain at, see, were just popping off the page as if in 3D. See, my eyes needed to learn to behave in a new way. My eyes needed to step back and stop straining and squinting and just allow the lenses to do their work. And isn't that just like Jesus when he says to you and to me, follow me? It might sound like this. Look at you. So many opinions. Wow. I want you to follow me, but leave your idols at home. Or, look at you with your advanced degree and your six figure salary. Wow. I want you to follow me, but check your ego at the door. Or, whoa. Look at you, Mr. Fancy Shoes. Aren't you proud? I want you to follow me. But just know that on this journey, we all walk barefoot. So a man comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus says, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And another man comes and says, Jesus, I, I want to follow you, but just let me go and bury my father first. And Jesus says, let the dead bury the dead. You come and follow me. What is it that Jesus is putting his finger on for you this morning when it comes to following him? That Jesus would say, I want you to follow me, but, but that thing has to die. 
Because if we're not aware of the baggage that we're bringing into a disciple-based relationship with Jesus, then we may end up not following Jesus, but we may end up following our preferences. I may end up following my gut. The Bible doesn't tell me to trust my gut. does not say that. I may end up following my heart. The Bible doesn't say to trust my heart. I may end up following my politics or my fears or my insecurities. I may be driven to follow based on my grievances or my comfort level or my desire for comfort. And it's not that those things have no place in the kingdom of God, but they cannot be primary. Yes, we're all made differently and we're individually wired and and we've had different experiences, but you are not set in stone. You can change. And there's surprising things about ourselves that can actually change When we say, Jesus, here I am with open hands. You do whatever you want. Change whatever you want. Surprising things can change. That's why the tagline of this church is transformed people transforming our world. It starts with us, and then it spreads out as a ripple effect. We're not just the tribe of the fighting mad changing our world. We could be that. But the way of discipleship says, you come to me and I'll change you first. Transform person. And now you go and transform the world. And in all of it, we've got to remember that the whole is greater than the sum of the individual parts. So we don't assemble a disciple. You don't become a disciple because you learned a Bible study method and then you learned to pray and then you learned to share your faith and bit by bit by bit. When we talk about discipleship, we're talking about a way of life, new ways of thinking, new ways of being, new ways of acting, new ways of talking. It's a lifestyle that has following Jesus right here at its core. So in closing this morning, I I talk to a lot of people who are discouraged. And the root of that discouragement is that Christians in this culture are becoming numerically outnumbered. If that's you, I want you to take heart, and I want you to remember risk, that it's not about who has the most, it's about who has the strategy and who's on mission. And when we read the Word of God, not read the Word of God, when we eat the Word of God, as we should, and it fuels us for the mission, Nothing can stop us. So in closing, I want to ask you to close your eyes. And now, instead of picturing an army, the better picture is I want you to picture a movement. A movement made up of people on the move. They are moving. They are doing things. Can you see it? A picture of a movement. And it's a movement filled with hope. It's a movement filled with life. It's a movement that has been so deeply touched and changed by their own experience with God, individually and collectively, that they can't wait to give it away to the world. That's the movement you want to be a part of. 
not a movement driven by anger or fear or resentment at the world. Because there's a difference between drawing us together over consensus. We all believe in our, the same. No, that's reductive. We want a movement that coalesces around life-giving attitudes and behavior. And if Jesus could change them, the, the, the disciples, and he could change you, who are we to say that there's anyone Jesus can't change? Yeah. Yeah, so Jesus, as you call us into your movement, I just pray that you would bless us with a spirit of patience and peace, because sometimes change takes time. But the most important change that begins is the change that you're going to do in us. And if there's been baggage that we've been carrying and saying, Jesus, I, I want to follow you, but we pray that you'd help us cut that off so that we can come to you with empty hands and open hearts and open minds about the way that you want to change us. It's never too late for you to change us. It's never too late for you to work in our lives or, or, or the life of anybody in the world. Who are we to say no on your behalf? Uh-uh. We say yes to you and yes to this movement that you're building, powered by your spirit, to bring life and health and growth into the world. We love you, Lord. We love you and we look forward to the great things that you will do through us and through this church in 2022. Thank you. It's a blessing to, to sit in your house, God. And we want to linger here. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you need prayer this morning, thank you. If you need prayer this morning on any aspect of something you heard this morning that is just sitting with you or, or anything uh, that we can intercede for you individually, there will be prayer encouragers and staff members down here at the front of the stage, and I'll be here for the three lucky people who are going to take home free copies of the story. I uh, can't wait to have you read it and then report back to me how that went. And there's all kinds of Bible study activity and discipleship activity at this church, and, and you might just be ready to take the next step into what that is waiting for you. So at the info tables out on the piazza after service, feel free to stop out and, and visit with those people out there. Will you please stand, and if you need to come forward for prayer... Lord bless you and keep you, make his face shine on you and be gracious to you and the Lord lift up his countenance upon all of us and give us, Lord, your peace. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Feel free to linger, but also feel free to, to go grab your kids and uh, that is our service for this weekend. We hope to see you next weekend. God bless you.